Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm delighted to welcome YS Chi, a longtime leader in the media and technology industry who currently serves our parent companies Elsevier and Relics in several different capacities. In his primary role as Director of Corporate Affairs and Asia Strategy for Relics, he's responsible for governmental affairs, corporate communications, and corporate responsibility for Relics. As non-executive chairman of Elsevier, he works directly with governments, Elsevier customers, and in industry associations worldwide. Weiss was previously president of the International Publishers Association and has served on dozens of charitable, educational, and industry boards, including at Princeton University, the Korean American Community Foundation, and ETS. I'll say I haven't met someone who's better at relationship building than I am until I had lunch with YS in Naples, and it was very clear how he had gotten to where he is. So I'm excited to have you on the show, YS, and to introduce you to our audience. Well, thank you for having me here. I think you're a little bit too generous with uh, credits. I don't think so at all, but uh, I obviously know a lot about your career, having spent some time talking to you, but walk us through some of your career highlights and what got you interested in publishing media and technology in the first place? Yeah, I think where I am today is certainly not anything that was imaginable or planned. Um, I started out as a banker, and then after seven or eight years, I moved on to IT industry. Then we had tremendous success, took the company IPO, and then I moved over to distribution, and that's where I really got into the, the book sector. I wouldn't even call it publishing sector, the book sector. And it was right at a time when Jeff Bezos started Amazon.com and our company was shipping every book for Amazon.com to support his takeoff. Uh, and after several years, we came up with the brilliant idea of having virtual inventory through something called print on demand and vastly uh, increased the amount of books that were available for anyone. And from there on, I became president of Random House. And then I moved on over to Elsevier about 17, 18 years ago. And through all that process, the thing that uh, people can't figure out is where the dots are connected. The dots are connected through people, not through the industry, not through any of my knowledge, domain expertise, none of that stuff. It was through two very important people that I've worked with all my life. And as they moved along and they had their opportunities, I went along with them as partner. And I think that's uh, how I ended up here. Otherwise, it would be absolutely inconceivable how the path can be actually drawn together. Well, there's a lot of threads to pull on that. And actually, we, we normally reserve the question of advice for our audience to the end. But uh, you're mentioning there's something very important that we'd like to click on, which is the importance of people and relationships. And so um, now is actually a good time to just ask you uh, maybe specifically about the people you work with. And I know you've been paying it forward too with other folks, including Jan Herzog, who uh, I report into uh, through Elizabeth Munn at GME, helping elevate him within Elsevier, and he's been wonderful to work with. Um, so can you talk specifically, you know, in the abstract, we know two people helped you progress in your career, but specifically, yeah. can you share any examples? So I came to America as a high school student, uh, went to a boarding school, learned English, went to college, graduate school. And during that time, the only thing that I could really count on was one, my own effort to do the best that I can, and two, unsolicited help from people who for some reason were extraordinarily generous to provide me opportunity to be exposed to things or to have a chance at something that I otherwise would not have been able to do so on my own. And I've always appreciated that personal relationship 
where someone would actually sponsor or mentor or take responsibility over someone that is not related to them, right? And I've seen and I've benefited from it so much that it has become really my modus operandi when I started working. So for me, mentoring is not something that I started when I became an executive. It's something I started when I was an entry-level banker. And it has been going on for a long time. And I think that what it has really allowed me to do is to add both on the top end opportunities that otherwise would not be visible to me. And on the bottom end, having that stability, that sense of assuredness that if things go wrong, I will get a second chance. I wouldn't be just swept out with the first mistake, but I would get a second chance. And I think that is the value that I ask young people to continually seek. It's not the best pay. It's not the best title. It's not the most famous company. It's who you get to work with. And among those who has to be at least one person who really cares about you, that when you do something by mistake and you learn from it, there is a second chance. And if on the other side, you do something really extraordinarily good and accomplish, then somebody has to recognize that, right? What good is it if you sing a beautiful song and there was no audience or you didn't record it, right? In the same way, you really need to have the interpersonal relationship. I'm sorry I gave you a very long answer, but it's just such a central core part of what I really believe in, in, the, in the professional as well as personal world. Don't apologize at all. That's really, really valuable advice. And I would also encourage our audience. Many of them are starting out their careers as health professionals or in science, technology, engineering, or math fields, um, that it's not too early to be a mentor, right? If you're listening to this and you're a, a nursing student or a medical professional, you can find a high school student or a college student that you can mentor. Absolutely. So uh, start paying it forward early and make that part of your process. And and frankly, you know, you have no idea how those careers intersect later on. I mean, one thing I realized why it's very early on was how many shared people we already knew, people like Deb Quazo, who uh, obviously runs ASU GSP, where we're both going to be on panels in about two weeks. Um, so th the world is very small once you start leading with a people first mentality, I think. Yeah. And there's also a selfish aspect of these interpersonal relationships that I think that people need to know. For me, when I mentor someone else, it's an opportunity to really learn something about me. It really is. In speaking with somebody and in listening to that person's options, choices, troubles, challenges, I have to kind of internalize it and see, okay, how would that have affected me? And therefore, what would I authentically be able to tell that person is the right path or right way of thinking, right choice, right? I can't tell someone to do this when I would have gone off to do something else. I've got, I've got to be honest and authentic about it. And so for me, mentoring is as much about learning who I am and what I am and why things are important to me as it is to that person. That is interesting because where I thought you were going to say is you're learning about, you know, you mentor someone young, you learn about trends in the industry or, or whatever. That too. <laughs> that, too. <laughs> that too, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, at, at my age, you know, I, I'm removed from what's really going on in the teens and the early 20s and 30 year olds, right? And one way I can stay connected is to listen to them all the time about what it is that affects them. And uh, I think that, in, you know, in, in the years that my, our children, my wife and I have two daughters, you know, when they were growing up, 
we could relate to a lot of things that otherwise parents might have been a little bit too remote to understand, but that's because we were listening from people of their age group, not necessarily from them. You, you know the whole issue, right? Right? ABP syndrome, anyone but parents. Oh. <laughs> Kids will talk about something with anyone but parents, right? So in that process, I think it, it is helpful. But even today, I think that for someone in the leadership position like we are, can become very remote, not because we intend to, but because people are kind of afraid to approach us. And by having these relationships, you can have natural link to truly what's going on in the organization, right? Honest feedback. And I think that's really valuable to me today. That's, that's a very good point. And uh, we may have to consider making a video, an osmosis video on ABP syndrome. We haven't, hadn't heard that condition yet. Um, so let's go into some of the things you've learned. I mean, obviously we launched this podcast, Raise the Line, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in the US in about April, 2020. A lot has changed in higher education and healthcare and government over those past two years. I'm curious, you know, given your kind of bird's eye view and also on the ground view, but bird's eye view right now on the boards of higher education institutions like Princeton, nonprofits like ETS, and then of course, Elsevier Relics, um, what are some of the kind of things that get you most excited about where the industry is going? you know, higher education as a whole, or, or maybe most fearful of it on the, on the flip side? Yeah, I mean, this is such a big topic that Shiv, I, you know, you and I could have a conversation to last the rest of the evening. Uh, but I think if I were to just pick one or two things that I'm learning through this process or this, this very unfortunate pandemic is, number one, that a lot of things we took for granted shouldn't be taken for granted. And it should be both a threat and opportunity for us, right? So as we undo the things that we have taken for granted for decades, we've got to think about how we reconstruct this. And in the reconstruction of it, we have to relearn everything that we had learned before and then forgotten or taken for granted. So I think that relearning process, re-questioning process has been healthy. Then on top of that, you lay the new things that are available to us, namely technology, right? Technology has moved so rapidly. And during the pandemic area, it has moved even faster. And so when you lay on top of it, then suddenly the little cracks start to show where there's opportunity for us to vastly make our society better. Now, that journey from where we were to where we wanna go is not going to be a straight line, nor is it going to be calm. It's going to be very turbulent. There are going to be winners and losers, right? So I think this is why we are kind of hesitant to move too fast toward that next destination. But I think it's time that we are honest with ourselves, we look at everything we've been doing, and ask, how can we vastly make our society better by using technology on top of the humanistic re-questioning of what we do, why we do. So humanistic re-questioning on top of it, the technology, and I think it's gonna be a great combination. And it's the stuff that you do, right? At Osmosis, that's what exactly you do, right? You take very simple human concepts to teach and you use technology to make it easier, less expensive, more efficient, more flexible, 
And that's why you've been so successful. No, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's this great rethink or great reshuffle. There's a whole bunch of terms that are uh, it's being called where people having had to sit at home and face tremendous grief and pain and, you know, economic and obviously emotional loss over the past two years have had to do this great rethink of what's our relationship to work? What's our relationship with our communities? Because of the pandemic, people have reconsidered what's the relationship to social media or the news to politics and a whole host of other things. You know, one reason I think we felt so comfortable becoming part of Elsevier is because of the, the entire focus on sustainable and uh, social reformation. So I think Relics very early on, as you were, you know, maybe two decades ago, you and uh, Eric Anders and others started investing in things that now are paying off a lot of fruit, where you have investors investing in Relics simply because of the stake in the ground you guys have made on climate change or on social justice and diversity, equity, inclusion. Can you talk a bit about what those early years were like, even having those conversations about uh, about those topics when so many other companies may have been only focused on the bottom line? Well, look, we do have to focus on bottom line because the bottom line feeds the ability for us to do what I'm about to talk about, right? And so we do. It's not like we are just trying to figure out a way to you know give away as fast as we can. Because what we do well, we should be rewarded for. But it's not the question of how much money you make. It's what do you do with it, right? So I don't want to take any credit for the, the wonderful things that have happened in this company over the past nearly two decades. Things were already there. The things that we did were always there. You know, we made great content to improve the lives of our society, both health and non-health. But I think that the change we brought about was to try to find these disparate things that we were doing that actually had common purpose. And we verbalized that purpose. That's what we did is we helped verbalize it so that it would be almost like a pole and people could go, go toward those poles and touch it, right? And one of those is to help improve health outcomes. So much of the things we did we publish books. No, we don't publish books. We enable people to make better health decisions, right? So it, it was the ability to verbalize the many myriad things that we were doing into those foci. It really touched our people. As you know, folks at Elsevier, for example, we have enormously long tenure having worked with us and they were always there but they suddenly began to realize there was a higher purpose. And we came with the word unique contribution to distinguish ourselves from other competitors who do similar things. Mechanically, they do similar things, but we were always looking for what is unique? What is our unique contribution to our customers? What is our unique contribution to our society? And they began to be verbalized and our team began to really embrace it. So today, as we went through two years of COVID separation, if anything, our team have become even more convinced of why we wake up every morning and do what we do, even though we are not in the office. Why do we work so hard? Why do we work so politely and together as a team? Because there is that unique contribution. And so I don't want to take any credit. I think the credit goes to our ability collectively to be able to verbalize it and center around it. And, and I think that we got really lucky. 
one of my favorite quotes is Thomas Jefferson. He said, I'm a firm believer in luck and I find that the harder I work, the more effort I have. Um, so I think you're being a little, very generous uh, giving the credit out, but obviously you were a major part of that uh, that change that happened at Elsevier, as well as other leaders like Kumsal, uh, the CEO of oh Elsevier, who last three years, I saw how the Employee Net Promoter Score has really massively improved under her leadership. And she joined us at the osmosis level. We're only 80 employees. Elsevier is over 8,000. We're 1% of Elsevier's size. She took the time to join us and talk to our entire team about her journey and what's important to her, including these initiatives we're talking about climate change, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I agree with you, you have to uh, have a double bottom line. You have to, it's what they say, no margin, no mission. Um, it helps fund those investments. And as you keep growing, you can hire more people and it help instill those values in them too. And they can be agents of change. The last point I'll make before I let you respond to any of that is, uh, it reminds me also of the JFK story, right? The famous JFK story where John F. Kennedy went to um, the Houston Center for NASA and asked a janitor, look, what do you do? And the janitor said, Mr. President, I send men to the moon, <laughs> right? And so even at that level had that calling, this, despite what work they were doing, they had that calling that it was much bigger than them. Indeed, and I think that that is what we try to do is to make people feel that no matter what piece of the entire puzzle you're putting together, you matter. And therefore you need to do a best job that you can because as a team, Oftentimes, we end up at the lowest common denominator. And when you raise the lowest common denominator, we all rise together. It's not just that that one person rising, the whole team rises together. And I think you know, your example of the JFK incident at NASA is exactly right. Everyone, whether they are you know, in, a, in a more mechanical job or that they're in a you know, strategic job, everyone feels they make a difference. So in terms of how to make a difference, you know, you wear so many different hats at Elsevier and Relics, uh, among other boards you're involved with. What are like, what does your day to day look like? Like, what are some of the things you do? I'm sure that's changed quite a bit uh, with COVID and, and, and the travel restrictions that came out from that. I think my day to day is impossible to describe. Even my week to week looks so different from one week to another. So I should say that my professional and personal life has this wave that is different each day, each hour, each week, depending on what is a priority. What I can say is that it is a mix of multiple things, right? It's one, a lot of time with customers. That is the number one overriding thing. It's not internal meetings. It's not thinking. Number one is spend as much time as possible with customers. See what they do why, how, and what is their pain points, learn it firsthand. Second is study a lot. Study all the time. You study by watching other people do it. You study by reading about it or watching things, even in YouTube, or asking people. You know, you have to grow your knowledge base every day. And I think that the combination of spending time with customer, learning on your own, and then thinking and, and addressing as a team what matches between our collective knowledge and our customers' needs, and then betting the house on it and work, work, work to complete what we agreed to do in that kind of sequence, right? So every day for me, have those elements professionally. Time to spend listening, time to study, 
time to discuss and exchange ideas and then come to a consensus, then work, work, work to make it happen. Not just all talk, work, right? And it's that balance that fills my day. Now, whatever time I have left, I've got to do things for myself too. So I insert in there exercise routines, lots of travel, <laughs> time for my family, time for my mentees. And then before you can blink, the day is over. Yeah, that's quite packed. I love that framework uh, of, again, spending time with customers. That When we were starting Osmosis, it was very easy because we were the customers. And as we've gotten bigger and started serving you know, millions of, of learners and other professions, because we were medical students at Hopkins, now we have nursing students in Zambia who learn by Osmosis or practicing professionals, cardiologists in Japan. You know, I have a sense of what they do, but it's the empathy isn't just immediate because we aren't the customers. So spending time with customers, that's something Kumsal and Jan both have explicitly mentioned as well. And then juxtaposing that against the research and the learning and reading. So on that point, like what type of books are you you know reading now or where do you go to learn and study that, that you can recommend to our audience? So when you get to my age, you don't try to learn something in a semester, right? You try to learn many, many smaller pieces. So naturally, the first place I go to learn are things at the article level, whether it's an article in a newspaper, whether it's an article in a journal or an article in some, something. And so it's really pieces of things that are very contemporary. When issues on the contemporary circumstance are unfamiliar with me, that's when I do the digging to do the, the traditional study to find out what it is. And that for me has become increasingly challenging because these are expertise areas that I'm really not familiar with. So my uh, cheating mechanism is, you know, I have a lot of mentees. I go to them and I say, hey, I've been reading this makes no sense to me. I can't get it. Why is this that? And I asked them to tutor me. And I have dozens and dozens and dozens of tutors around the world that is going to be willing to teach me. Some people teach me about blockchain. Some people teach me about the latest vaccines. Some people teach me what really is happening in the mentality of leaders in Ukraine as they fight the Russians. You know, I think Having these tutors is necessary for me. That's how I learn now. And so it's not thick books. It might be sections of it. Thank goodness they're all electronic, right? It's really article level and it's really digging deeper through tutors that can help me put the pieces together. That has the added benefit of, of relationships, right? People absolutely both ways. Yeah. So It is both ways. Yeah. I love that. That's really, really helpful advice. We're coming up on time, so I want to be respectful of yours. Um, I just have two other questions. The first is, you know, we already started this podcast episode with advice, finding mentors and how to develop that and becoming a mentor. What other advice would you give to people in our audience and or just generally young people starting out their careers in a very uncertain world with a lot of unforeseen macro trends that are pretty new? You know, when I talk to people, I like to use two types of analogies. One is food and the other is sports. So on this question, I'm going to use a food analogy. You know, I think when one is still young, you should be in a collection mode. You're collecting knowledge, you're collecting interest, you're collecting opinions, right? 
And you don't know exactly how they're going to be all coming together or which ones you're going to throw out and which ones you're going to add. But you have to be in a collection mode without having the, the preconceived bias already saying, oh, no, I don't need this carrot because I'm going to cook something that doesn't require carrot. No, pick one up. You never know, right? Because you may change your mind and not cook that dish. You might cook something else. So one of the advice that I like to give young people are just keep collecting, collecting knowledge, collecting interest, collect the network of people you want to know, you want to be around, collect. And then at some point in time, it will become obvious which pieces fit with which. But you don't have to plan that in advance. Our education system in most countries in the advanced world are about putting people on a path. You were on a path for a while. You jumped off the highway, boldly. You jumped off the highway, right? From a medical school. I mean, until that point, you were on a highway going at 110 miles an hour and beating everybody, right? From the high school to Harvard to Hopkins. But you got off and you kind of reassess, what have I got? I want to do this on osmosis. What have I got? Who do I need as partner? Do I need Rishi as a partner? Or do I need someone else as a partner? You had that, but you didn't plan that, did you? It worked out, didn't it? Yeah. So I think that that would be my advice to young people. You are in medical school. You're in nursing school. You're in vet school. Whatever you are, you're collecting knowledge. You don't know how exactly you're going to use it. You might become a physician or you might go into medicine-related publishing or medicine-related technology or medicine-related policy and become a politician. Who knows? And does it matter? Not yet. It may matter later on, but until that point, it's about collecting knowledge. It's about collecting interest. It's about collecting network. So there you go. I love that. Yeah, that's, uh, again, hindsight bias. You create this narrative fallacy where all these pieces fit together, but moving forward, you have no idea. And one of our previous guests, more recent guests in Ray's line, Michael Mina, He's a chief scientific officer at a digital health company called EMED. Um, he was a Buddhist monk in in, uh, in Sri Lanka uh, back in 2004 and then eventually went and became a doctor. And... Imagine what he took with him from learning about being a monk to the rest of his life. You know, I envy that. <laughs> I mean, your, your career is quite storied as well. So my last question for you is, is there anything <laughs> we've missed about you, Elsevier, Relics, uh, or anything else that you'd like our audience to know about that? I don't know. I mean, I think that your audience is generally uh, self-motivated, driven people that have purpose and goals in life. And we just talked about, yeah, fine. You can go at 120 miles an hour. It's okay. But just make sure you look around, you know, and then know when to jump off the highway, take a rest, take a little, you know, local route and, and discover. You can get back on the highway when you want to, you know, but, you know, make sure that there's a variety in your life that if you're a STEM student, it's not all about STEM. It's about reading about philosophy and about literature and about human psychology or the other way around. I, I know someone who is, is just a diehard um, athlete. And with this person, I'm constantly reminding the person to stop and enjoy something non-athletic along the way and combine the two, right? It makes it so much richer to do so. You know, that, that is what I guess the audience of this podcast would get the most out of. And 
in my case, as a foreign student coming to America through the generosity of scholarship systems and, and getting the education that I got, but more importantly, getting the people that I met at these institutions that are my lifetime friends and colleagues, I think that is something I did not value very much at that age that of course turns out to be the most valuable thing that I got, you know? I went to graduate school and I joke about the fact that the most important thing I got at that graduate school is not my job. Although my first job was amazing. The most important thing I got was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she attended the same school and I met her and you know, my life's changed forever, you know? So don't always plan it. Totally. I couldn't agree more. It's all about, it ultimately comes down to just the relationships and the people and together you can do quite a bit. So YS, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and obviously creating this legacy that, that osmosis is just a very small, but uh, excited part of. Very exciting part. I mean, you can set examples, not just to other parts of Elsevier, but to other parts of this education, information analytics space because of what I described earlier about combining these two things together, right? And, and I, I hope that I hope that we have more of osmosis just scattered everywhere in our organization. I love it. Love it so much. Well, thanks again. And, and to our audience, thank you so much for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.